Well, it's great to be together again. Uh, I want to tell you, you have your outlines in your program. You need that outline. I came in the worship center this week, and uh, I always come in to put my material on the computer and uh, all of that. And when I came in, I found this. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized it was one of my outlines. <laughs> and it has been filled out, too. And I said, Lord, thank you. Somebody's actually using those things. I got a real chuckle out of it. It was, it was fun. But I know not all of you are doing that to the outline. Uh, you're using them. So... Uh, just before I pray, let me tell you that um, Pastor Josh and Megan are off on a little vacation. Josh always goes over to southern Idaho this time of year and does some duck hunting, and they have fun over there. And uh, I talked to him yesterday, and uh, he had gotten a couple good ducks yesterday, and, and uh, or geese, I'm not sure which. And uh, But he told me that they learned yesterday that Megan's granddaddy has passed away. And so they may be cutting this end of their vacation a little bit short and heading down toward the Sacramento area for a memorial service. And maybe we'll be getting back a few days late as a result of all of that. But so I say to you, uh, let's keep praying for them. God wrap his arms around them. God give them safe travel. That's a lot of miles. And so uh, let's be praying for them. Let's bow together and pray. Father, today you want us to talk about loving our enemies. And that is, um, that is somewhat of a difficult subject uh, because it's so easy in our nature to... Uh, hate those who are our enemies. And our culture actually tells us to do that. So, so today, Father, we would ask you to unpack some of this for us so that we understand a little bit more about how you want us to live for you and bring honor to you. We do pray, Father, for Pastor Josh and Megan and the girls. We pray You'll protect them, keep them safe. And in the midst of all of this, Father, we pray that you'll still give them some good, relaxing downtime that they will be able to enjoy each other and enjoy family members. So bless them. Bring them home safely to us in your timing. And we pray you'll take care of them. In these moments, Father, as we work together, study together, open our hearts and our minds to what you would have us see today. And we'll thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are talking about loving our enemies, and that is a difficult process. Uh, someone has said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also love our enemies. And the reason is, more often than not, they are the same people. Uh, I don't know whether 
that's true or not, you will see that uh, the concept of neighbor is a little different as we read it in Scripture than the where our culture tends to put it. And uh, uh, it's important that we grab this passage and come to understand it. I would like to start with uh, a little bit out of uh, Corey Tenboom's book. You know who Corey Tenboom was. She she was a Dutch Christian, and she and her family were responsible for um, saving a lot of Jews out of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. And uh, she was born on April 15th. Uh, 1892, she died at the age of 91, also on April 15th, I might add. I think she must have hated tax day. And um, But she wrote her book, The Hiding Place, and it is an incredible piece of work on what God is able to do in difficult circumstances. And I want to read a piece out of that to start us off this morning. She says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard over the shower door in the processing center at Ravenbrook. He was the first of all of those jailers that I'd ever seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men. The piles and heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. Ultimately, Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy were thrown into a concentration camp because of their working with the Jews. And uh, Betsy was her younger sister. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. I, I, to think that, as you say, Jesus has washed all my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached to so many people, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even the angry, vengeful thoughts boiling through me, even with them, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to be able to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Lord Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And today Jesus is talking about how we deal with irregular people. Now we all have irregular people in our lives. Some of you are irregular. Uh, and some of you think I'm irregular. That's okay. Uh, but Jesus is talking about 
our enemies, actually. And I would like to start in the text. You have the outline in front of you. Let's take a look at it. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now let me pause there. The Bible doesn't say you should hate your enemy. I'll explain that in just a moment. Um, uh, but that's what they understood, these Jews that were in front of Jesus on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he says, but I say to you, that's our statement, I, even I, say to you. So what I'm going to say now is going to be in contrast to what you have already been taught. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same. Now let me say that at this point in history, in the life of Israel and in the life of the average Israelite, the lowest form of person was a Roman tax collector. They hated them with a passion because the tax collectors treated them horribly. And so when Jesus uses even the tax gatherers do that, he is using an extremely derogatory term at this point. And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Circle the words, what do you do more than others? They are actually the translation of a single word, uh, parision. The word is parision. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 10.10 10 when he said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more Abundantly, that's parision, that they may have it with extravagance, that they may have it extraordinarily, that, that word means extraordinary, that they might have it remarkably. So let me clarify for you what Jesus is saying here. If you greet only your brothers, if the only people you're nice to if the only people you like or you love are people who like and love you, there's nothing extraordinary about that. Because even the pagans do that. He says there's nothing that is remarkable about that. And if there's anything we learn from the Sermon on the Mount, it is that kingdom people live remarkable lives. It is that kingdom people who are people of the Beatitudes, are people who function differently than the world functions. And so, uh, what do you do more than others? In other words, what's remarkable about that? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, 
The word that he uses for perfect is teleos. It doesn't mean that we are perfect in the sense that God is divine and perfect. That's not what it means. It means that we are complete. I'll explain that a little bit later. So let's take a look at the outline. There is the Old Testament, what I call the Old Testament perversion. The Old Testament perversion. Jesus states the law out of Leviticus 19.18. Uh, it really did not say, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. It does not say that. Uh, uh, it would not be unusual for the Pharisees to pervert something in the law. We've seen them do that with murder. We've seen them do that with marriage. We've seen them do that with other things. Why would they leave this one out? So what was their belief? Here was their belief. If the law stated, love your neighbor, then obviously the reverse must also be true. That was their reasoning. It was a reasoning based on silence. If the Bible says, love your neighbor, then it must mean hate your enemy. <laughs> and that's what they taught. They wrote it down in their, in their interpretations of the Old Testament law. And when they taught the people in the synagogue and in the temple, this is the stuff that they taught. And so they perverted this text from Leviticus 19.18 into making it to hate your enemies. And it was okay to hate your enemies. It was all right. It was acceptable for you to hate your enemies. What was their error? The error was this. They took a good thing and they applied it in the wrong place. Let me put it this way. God sometimes told Israel to eradicate a people, but never out of hate, only out of justice and judgment. And only God has the right to make that decision of justice and judgment as to who should live and who should die. They were never meant to take this judicial principle and apply it in their personal lives against individual people. They were never meant to do that. But that's precisely what they did. They took God's word of saying, go in and clean out the land of Canaan. Wipe everything out. Every living, breathing thing. Kill. And they said, well, if that's the way it is, then uh, I should be able to kill that guy over there who doesn't like me. Uh, that is not what God meant. But that's what they did. Loving your neighbor automatically means hating your enemy. So who is my neighbor? Uh, I give you there uh, Luke chapter 10 verses 29 to 37. You know the story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And you know a Jew falls ill. Actually he's beat up. And he's robbed. And he's lying along the road. And a Jewish priest comes along. And he walks on the other side of the road. So he doesn't have to deal with it. And then a Levite comes along. And he walks also on the other side of the road. He doesn't want to have to deal with it. 
And then a Samaritan comes, these guys that were hated by the Jews. And what does a Samaritan do? He bandages him all up. He gets him all together. He takes him to a motel. He pays the motel owner money to take care of him and promises him more. And we have the story of the Good Samaritan. People who were hated by the Jews. So what is the principle? My neighbor is anyone whose needs I can meet. See, in our thinking of neighbor, um, uh, the word that is used for neighbor in this text, I might add, is uh, pleisium. And it has a wider, broader sense. See, when I think of a neighbor, I'm talking about the guy on the other side of the fence. I'm talking to guy about the guy on the other side of my backyard. Uh, and uh, uh, where I live now, in the manufactured home park and in, in my trailer, I can almost reach out and touch the people next door. Uh, that's my neighbor. See, that's what we think about. But uh, teleos means something, com- I'm sorry, um, uh, pleision means something very different. It's a broader form. Anybody is my neighbor whose need I can meet. And that's the nature of the story of the Good Samaritan. And so uh, anyone who needs my assistance, whether he is my friend or my foe or my enemy, he becomes my neighbor. So then who is my enemy? Jesus defines that for us in Luke chapter 6. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So my enemy is anybody who hates, curses, or mistreats me. Now, with that in mind, a lot of us may have a lot of enemies. Uh, A lot of people have mistreated a lot of people. A lot of people have cursed a lot of people. A lot of people have said, I hate him or I hate her. Uh, Our enemies feel and act negatively toward us. Notice, he is not talking about us acting negatively toward our enemies. He's talking about people who hate us, who curse us, who mistreat us. He never reverses that. So our enemies are people who act negatively toward us, not the other way around. We are never given the right in Scripture to act negatively toward an enemy. Now, I I, I want you to say again, I want to say again, we're not talking about self-defense here and that sort of thing, as we spoke a few weeks ago. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, the fact is, uh, uh, he is telling us that's the way the enemies treat us. So let's take a look at the New Testament position then. Love your neighbors. That is a settled issue, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament said clearly, love your neighbors. Uh, The Old Testament said clearly that you are to love the people whose needs you can meet and whose the people who are around you. But it never said, love your enemies. 
This teaching was new. It wasn't found any place in the Old Testament. Even though there are a few places, like in the Proverbs, that come a little bit close, they are not the same. They don't come right out and say, love your enemies. And as a result, uh, you have this whole perception of the Pharisees that were taught by the Pharisees that you were allowed to hate your enemies. But the New Testament doesn't give us that. So he says, love your enemies. This response, listen, this response goes against our very nature. See, if you and I function out of the old nature, our only desire is to hate and kill our enemies. It's the nature of the animal. Uh, our old nature will say, get rid of that. What kind of love is he talking about? He's talking about love without variableness and conditions. The word that he uses is the word agape. It's the same word that is used in John 3.16 when it says, For God so loved the world. Now when you talk about agape, there are two issues connected with agape. Here's the first one. Unconditional. This love has to be unconditional. Did you know that the worst sinner on the planet could not sin bad enough to make God not loving? There was a time when I had to say to one of my children, I had to say, I want you to know that I love you. And nothing you could ever do, how bad it gets, nothing you could ever do can ever change that love. It is set in concrete. But there will be a point where you're going to do something that I cannot condone. And you may experience some consequences for that thing, but it will not change my love for you. That's what unconditional love is. I, 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 I can tell you that most of the problems in marriage is based on conditions, expectations. See, uh, what I have to do is I have to make up my mind that Carolyn is the love of my life no matter what she does, no matter how she acts. Now, I lucked out. She's perfect. She never does anything wrong. Uh, the first concept in agape love is that it is unconditional. The second concept in agape love is that it is sacrificial. It is sacrificial. And he is saying, I must agape love my enemies. I must be willing to sacrifice for my enemies. And understand this. This is not a matter of feeling. It's a matter of action. God did not feel good to send his son to be crucified and mutilated so that you and I could be redeemed. 
God didn't get up one morning and sit over a table with a cup of coffee and say, Oh, my son is going to go get mutilated and murdered, and I feel so good about that. It's not a matter of feeling. It's a matter of acting on this unconditional love that we have for one another. This concept of agape love is incredible. And listen, let me say that where we are, we are in flux right now as a church. We are in transition as a church. Uh, we are without a, a permanent senior pastor right now as a church. You know what we need more than anything else? More than anything else? More than anything else? We need unconditional, sacrificial love for each other. If that does not exist, then the outcome will not come out right. There should be no enemies in this room. Our sacrificial, unconditional love for each other will bring us together in such a way that God will be able to do what God wants to do in this place. We need that more than anything else. And so, this love becomes the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God in our, in our lives. It's God's ability to control us. And as a result, we are able to reach out to our enemies in unconditional love and sacrificial love and minister to them. So back to Corey Ten Boom. She's standing in front of this SS guard who used and abused her. And she says, as I looked at his hand, the most incredible thing happened. As I took hold of his hand, from my shoulder along my arm, down through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Then she goes on to say, and so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on Christ and Christ alone. When he tells us to love our enemies, listen, when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. See, because you and I are indwelt by the triunity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And with this new nature, we can do things that we otherwise would not be able to do in the old nature. And that's how the Beatitudes come into being in us. That's how we live extraordinarily in the kingdom, is because we have a power in us that we otherwise would not have. And then he says, pray for your enemies. If you get this picture today, if you don't get anything else, if you get this, it'll change your life. It is difficult, if not impossible, 
to pray for someone and stay mad at them at the same time. I've tried it. It is difficult, if not impossible, to pray for someone and stay mad at them at the same time. Now, I've told you this story, but you probably forgot it, so I'm going to tell you again. When I first went to Anchorage, Alaska, in the military, I wasn't married yet, so this was a few years ago. I was piled up. We had rooms of two guys to a room. Very unusual for military barracks in those days. But I was in a kind of a special outfit. And I was piled up with a guy who was from my home state, Pennsylvania. And he was a Christian. Man, I thought I died and gone to heaven. I was going to get to room with another believer. And we would share in transportation going to the same church every Sunday. But it didn't seem to work that way. This guy was irregular. I mean irregular. His name was Ed Edwards. Um, if I said something was black, he'd say it was white. If I said it was white, he'd say it was black. If I said it was right, he'd say it was wrong. We could never agree on anything. I got to the point where I didn't even want to talk to the guy. I got to the point where I hated the guy. I didn't want to live with this guy, but I didn't get a choice. We would come and go day after day and not speak to each other because we were constantly mad at each other. You know, some husbands and wives do that. Uh, finally, I got tired and I wrote my pastor. I had a, a pastor in a little church in Shikshini, Pennsylvania. And uh, between him and his daddy, they were the pastors of uh, Furnace Street Baptist Church for 75 years. His daddy led me to Christ by his daddy's wheelchair. His daddy was a paraplegic. And Warren Burtzel was his name. And I wrote him a letter. And I wrote this whole thing out. It was about this long. And I, I explained, what do I do in this situation? Well, Warren, you have to understand Warren. He's home with the Lord now, but you have to understand Warren. Um, he was a guy of few words. He took a hat, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, and he scribbled three words on it. Pray for him. I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I thought, there's got to be something better than that. So I fooled around with it for a couple of weeks, and I kept opening it up, looking at it. And so finally I thought, well, I'll try it. I thought, well, I'll try it. So I started praying for Ed. And I prayed about his life. I prayed about all the things that were wrong with him. I prayed about God changing him in a dozen different areas. I prayed about this, and I prayed about that. And, and then came the day... When I ran out of things to pray for, and I had to say to Ed, Ed, how could I pray for you? And Ed said, my grandmother's dying. And I'd like you to pray that when she dies, I'll be able to go home to Pennsylvania for the funeral. 
So I began praying about that. And then she died. And Ed went home. And he came back and I kept praying. I prayed the whole time he was there. And let me tell you what happened. The first thing that happened was praying for him kept my emotional focus off of his actions. See, because you can't pray for somebody and stay mad at them at the same time. It took my emotional focus off of his actions. And the second thing that it did is it helped me to see that when he said it was white, it really was white. And when he said it was wrong, it really was wrong. I was the one that was wrong. And God, through those prayers, pointed out to me what changes I needed to make and where I was wrong. And as a result, we became the absolute best of friends. And he was the best man in my wedding. Now, I think this will change your life. I don't care who has hurt you. I don't care how bad they have hurt you. I don't care how long the hurt went on. You begin praying for them. And find things to pray about. And God will change them. And God will change you. And in the process, you won't have an enemy anymore. So what is the purpose of this kind of prayer? Well, first of all, so that we can prove to the world that we are the sons of God, that we are the sons of our Father in heaven. Christians act like this, in other words. This is the way kingdom people live. This is the way they know that we are of the Father, because this is the way kingdom people live. And then to display God's love in a tangible way. We are able to show what the world needs. It needs this unconditional and this sacrificial kind of love. And then it benefits and strengthens our own lives. You pray like this for people who are irregular and God will grow you in ways that you could never grow without it. And then there is the reachable practice. The reachable practice. Loving the lovely is not different from the world. Loving people who love you is easy. Loving people who speak highly of you is easy. We have to have the kind of righteousness that exceeds that which the pagans possess. This is not impossible. Understand this. God is saying to you, live sacrificially and unconditional love before the world, even your enemies. This is not impossible. I was sitting with a group a week or two ago, and we were talking about something that was difficult. I said, you can do this. This is not the Kobayashi Maru. This is not the Kobayashi Maru. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, see, the young people know what I'm talking about. But I'm a Trekkie, see? So, uh, and the Kobayashi Maru was a test that every uh, 
a, a captain of a starship had to go through because it was what was called the unwinnable scenario. And Captain Kirk never believed in the unwinnable scenario. This is not an unwinnable scenario. You and I can do it because there is power inside of us who is the triune God who can move us and enable us to accomplish this whole concept. So it is a reachable practice. If tax collectors can do it and pagans can do it, listen, you and I can do it. It's as simple as that. And then there's the restated principle. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A person is perfect when he reaches maturity and fulfills his purpose and design. He's not saying you have to be perfect in the same way God is perfect, God is divine. That's not what he's saying. Let me illustrate for you. I'm living, Carolyn and I are living in our motorhome. It's not a motorhome, it's a trailer. And uh, I had a loose screw in the trailer. Uh, whenever I'm in the trailer, there's always a loose screw in the trailer. But I had a loose screw in the trailer. And I went out to the truck, and I opened up the back of the truck, and I got a screwdriver. And when I walked in and put that screwdriver in the slot of that screw, it fit exactly. And at that moment, that screwdriver was perfect. Because it was fulfilling the task for which it was created. And when you and I show unconditional, sacrificial love to the world, including our enemies, we are fulfilling the task for which we are created. And the result is we are complete, teleos, perfect, as far as God and the New Testament is concerned. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have a perfect complexion. You don't have to be without pain. You can have arthritis. All God wants you to do is be doing that which he called you to do. And when you do that, you are complete as far as God is concerned. As a character of God is sacrificial and self-imparting love, so the disciple, when he reproduces that love in word and action, and you become perfect. It is when man reproduces in his life the unwearied, forgiving, sacrificial benevolence of God, that he becomes like God and is therefore perfect in the New Testament sense of the word that should be of the word. So God is saying, he's there and he's with us. He will never let us down. Just be sacrificial, be unconditional in your love, and you can even do that with your enemies. Back to Corey Tinboom. She says, often I have heard people say, how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic, and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather, but God is also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my very eyes in a German concentration camp. I remember on one occasion 
when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark, and there was darkness in my heart. And I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, uh, said Betsy. He has not forgotten us. Remember his word? For as the heavens are as high as the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. Corey continues. There is an ocean of God's love available. There is plenty for everyone. May God grant you never to doubt the victorious love, whatever the circumstances. And then she says this. She says, you will never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And sometimes he puts us into situations where he's all we've got. And it might be with an enemy. And he wants us to practice sacrificial, unconditional love with that enemy. So as you go to communion this morning, there's a a position over there and there's a place over there and a station over there and a station over there. And When you get up and go to communion, ask yourself, do I have agape love? And do I have it for everybody in this room? Do I have it for everybody in our church? Do I have it for the people who are irregular in my life, on the job, in the school, in the home, in the family? Do I have it? And if I don't, I'm just going to start praying for those people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for your truth. God, having the truth is one thing. Having the power to carry it out is another. And you, Father, have given us that power. There's no unwinnable scenario in the Christian life. God, you are great. You can do anything. And we thank you today, Father, that you've brought us this far. Allow us to honor you. Give us that sense of unconditional, sacrificial love for each other that will grow us that will grow our church, that will see you accomplish what you want to accomplish. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your body, for giving your blood, that we might be redeemed. Bless us as we participate. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.